0: So, happy Friday, everybody. It's been a pretty interesting week for us uh, in the markets. Uh, pretty interesting week on the international trade front. Lots of, lots of stuff going on out there. And uh, it seems at least that the vast majority of that is in fact positive. Um, which is good. Which is good for us all. So, uh, I want to get right to the questions. Uh, oh, first, no, first... Um, Next week is a holiday week, but I will still be doing the podcast on Friday. Um, I'll probably do it early in the day on Friday. Um, So, you know, get your questions in. I'll put a reminder up as usual and that kind of things. But um, uh, get your questions in early so I can make sure I get them answered. Because I'm probably going to do it first thing Friday morning um, just to make sure I do it. Um, and uh, I don't I, I don't I, I, I don't like when uh, people try to ask questions and I just can't get to them for whatever reason. And just, you know, um, I'd rather not have you have to wait for a week or do all the uh, uh, back and forth of the emails and stuff like that. It's just easier to address it uh, once and for all. So let's let's get to the questions. Do you feel with what now has transpired in Washington that the argument for owning Fannie Mae common stock is getting weaker. Um, th- it, this, is, this is a really hard question for me because at some point the preferred stock and the common stock are gonna trade together, right? Because I think everyone's under the assumption and I've heard nothing different uh, from any source that the preferred junior preferred exists right now is not going to be converted into common stock so at some point the common stock and the preferred stock are going to in fact trade together okay now the question in the wild card is what happens between now and that conversion right if treasury comes out with a plan and they Um, acknowledge in writing, other than, you know, verbal hints or wishes that they hope things happen, that the common stock will continue to exist, that it's not going to be extinguished. Um, then the question is, does the common stock go from its 275 to five? Does it double? Or maybe I'd have to go to probably 525 or 540, um. Because if that's going to happen, then the preferreds are going to double. The preferreds are going to go to par. And right now, you can buy the $50 preferreds for about $21, $20 a share. And last I looked, the 25 preferreds were about $12. Um, So there's still a decent valuation advantage to owning the $50 preferreds. Um, And they're going to go to par because you can't get preferred less than par if you keep the current common in existence. That's just the way it is. Um, And there's no chance that. Uh, junior preferred shareholders who currently are in litigation would settle their suits and agree to put the suits behind them um, if they don't receive par. Um, uh, And if they don't settle the lawsuits and put that to bed, uh, they're going to have a really hard time raising the $100 billion they're going to need to raise um, if there's a chance that um, the entities are going to owe 285 or $300 billion back to these shareholders. So they have to, before they raise the capital, they have to settle the suits. So they have to treat junior preferred shareholders fair. Um, so that's the wild card. The wild card is what happens between the announcement of this is the plan to the common stock until the time it's converted to, uh, the junior preferred is converted. So the reason I did what I did, and I sold most of my common, and I went into the uh, $50 preferreds because at the time uh, it was trading about 307, 309. So I would have needed 614, uh, probably closer to 620, 625 actually on the common stock to get the same valuation advantage as a well being the preferreds that I'm going to look at, that I'm going to look at, you know, more than doubling based on the current prices. So that's why I did what I did. I'm looking at, in my mind, a, as certain as one could be, you know, obviously nothing's one hundred percent. Doubling of the price of my preferred shares, and I don't know if the common's going to do that. I don't know if the common's going to go from at the time I sold from three nine to three forty. I'm mean, sorry, to, from like three oh nine to, you know, six dollars and forty cents to make up for the valuation differential. Um, I don't know if that's going to happen when they announce the plan. There's a possibility the common goes down in value. Um, but I see very little chance that my preferred goes down in value. I think it actually doubles, a little more than doubles. So that's what I did what I did. Now, once they convert, your upside in the common and your upside in the preferred are the same because the preferred going to be converted to common. So you're going to share in whatever upside or downside there is after that event. You will share in it. Um, I just was more comfortable taking it what my mind was a pretty certain 110, 115% gain versus the common, which I think is a wild card. Now, hey, the common could, again, now this is, there's a difference between trading prices and valuation, right? The common could go from, I think it's two cents now, could go to seven or eight bucks, right? Who knows, what, when, when the news comes out, nobody can predict what the common shares are gonna trade at. They could go up 150%. Right. I mean, they could, you know, they've, they've been seven, eight, nine bucks in the last few years before. So they could do that again. People could trade all they crazy bid it up before they read the plan, before they figure this out, before they run the numbers. And you can make a fortune on your comment. But I don't know. And I, given the size of the position that I had, I'm much more comfortable taking in what I view as a certain 110, 115 percent return. Then and then being aligned with the common, post conversion, post recap. Assuming I stay in that long, I, I don't know that I'll do that, but we'll see. um Then being in the common and you know, again the upside in the common could be huge. It could go to ten bucks, right? It could be a two hundred percent, two fifty percent winner from here. I don't know, but it could also go to dollar twenty five. So that was why I did what I did. I don't think the outlook so to actually uh, sorry to actually answer the question um i don't think the argument for owning common is getting weaker i think it just comes down to how big is your position what price are you in at and what do you think is going to happen and can you stomach it dropping 50 um until the conversion happens and things eventually start to take off or do you, are you confident it's going to go to eight, nine bucks? And I don't know the answer to that because I haven't seen the plan. So I don't know what it's being valued at. Um, I know none of these things. And without knowing that, I can't tell you what it's going to do. But I can, you know, I'm as sure as I can be that my, common sto- I'm sorry, my preferred stock is going to more than double. So that's where I'm at with that. And that was the reason I made that decision. Um, any idea of the timetable of GSE, Fannie Mae? Fading back. Uh, I'm hearing that the plan will be out in the next two weeks. So it'll be the week after 4th of July, maybe the Friday, of 4th of July weekend. Um, market will be closed. Everyone's on a long weekend anyway. Give everybody, everybody plenty of time to digest what's happening uh, before the markets open on Monday, and all hell breaks loose. So I, I don't think they're going to announce a plan you know, at 8.30 on a Wednesday morning Before the markets open, because it would be complete and total chaos when the stocks open. So I have a feeling it'll be um, either next Friday um, after the 4th of July or the Friday after that. So that's what uh, my guess is. Um, uh, And as far as anything happening after that, it's all up in the air. But as I said last week, um, the stocks are going to react based on the plan. Uh, not necessarily the timetable. So maybe, you know, your preferred set are fifty dollars go to thirty eight or forty bucks in a day, um, and the other ten bucks is kind of waiting for, you know, more digestion and more, you know, feedback from Congress and objections from people or analysts, anticipations of the plan succeeding, things like that before you get the rest of it. But uh, whatever happens it'll be a it'll be a large jump the first day of trading. Um, Todd, curious to hear your thoughts on the HSC financing rounds. Yes. Oh, this is in the week. Uh, what is a buyout price for HHC? So the financing round was odd to me. I couldn't figure out. I didn't understand why I understood why the stock was selling off and I was making phone calls and texting people and emailing people and not getting a response, which had never happened before. Um, then all of a sudden I wake up the next morning and the, the reasons were pretty clear. So um, I'm guessing that the financing was done in conjunction with the, you know, strategic review they're doing. You know, you don't the whoever's been hired to do the strategic review or saw the company uh, would have been informed of the financing would have known about it all along would possibly have recommended it for whatever reason, I don't know. Um, but uh, I think that the two are definitely interrelated And in how I'm not sure of, but um, as far as the buyout price of Howard Hughes, uh, I did a post on it the other day. I think 150 is a is the floor. Um, and the reason I feel that way is because uh, WineReb um, took out $120. It, it, so I'm, I'm rounding numbers up. The the actual number of warrants he took was like 1.94 million and the actual conversion price was 124.992 I think um, so I'm rounding up to 2 million and uh, $25 a share um, is what he paid for the warrants so uh, given the 125 conversion price, the $25 per warrant he paid, his break even on the warrants is 150 Uh Grant Hurlitz his break-even price on the warrants he purchased was about 140, And O'Reilly, the CFO, Grant Hill is the president. Uh, O'Reilly, the CFO, has about a $132 break-even price on his warrants. Obviously, Wine Red's warrants are by far the largest. Um, he's got 1.9 million shares. I think O'Reilly had about 80000 I think. Um, uh, Hurlitz had two do Don't call me those numbers, but that gives you just a general idea of the um, difference in the number of shares between the the, the, the arguments. I mean, uh, um, uh, Hurlitz invested two million and, and Weinberg invested 50 million in his warrants. So um, and management as a group is the largest single shareholders of the company. Um, so I don't see any scenario in which 150 for a bot for the company, anything below 150 is accepted. Uh, Wine Reb's not going to sign off on that. Um, as far as what it goes to, I don't know. Um, you know, if you know, I've, they're they're all large shareholders. They get 160 a share for it for 10 bucks a share. He can exercise his warrants and um, or be bought up by his warrants because if change of control. Um, and he makes 10 bucks a share on 2 million shares. Nice $20 million profit on his trade in a couple years. That's pretty good. Um, I have no idea. Uh, and that's assuming the company's bought out, right? There's also various scenarios. You know, you know, and look at it. You know, we've been talking for years about spinning off the um, um, NOI producing properties uh, into a REIT. Um, so maybe they sell those to a REIT. You know, there's lots of REITs that would love to get their hands on that property. You know, as I said in the post, Blackstone in January raised twenty billion dollars to invest in real estate. You know, paying nine, ten billion dollars for Howard Hughes, and given the asset base it has, and given the immediate return on investment from the NOI producing properties, and given the fact that Blackstone would then own sixty acres waterfront in Honolulu. Um, you know, Jonathan Gray and Bill Ackman are good friends. Bill Ackman is the chairman of Howard Hughes. Jonathan Gray runs Blackstone's real estate division. Um, uh, to me, it's a no-brainer. Uh, I'm sure Brookfield will want to get in on it. You know, they, their tentacles seem to pop up whenever any kind of real estate deal comes out there. Um, so maybe get a bidding war. Or maybe they split it. Or maybe they joint venture together. Uh, maybe they went together on it and decide that we're going to split this up or we're going to run it together. I mean, who knows what they're going to do, but um, there's no doubting the asset base and the quality of it. So I'm of the opinion that there'll be plenty of interested people in, if not the entire company, some of its assets, and they could sell some of it not all of it. But again, I think that If they sell part of the company, obviously all the, <clears throat> depending how much they sell and what's sold, you're going to have to have some adjustments to some of the warrant prices. So they're going to have to sell what they sell um, as a part of a whole of the pieces valuation that is over 150 a share. So I think that's the floor. So um, HTC, in your opinion, if you sold, if you, <laughs> last question, if you sold some of the parts to get a valuation of 200 bucks. I think that for a long-term buyer of those assets, paying $200 a share, you're not getting ripped off. All right. If obviously, so private equity is going to pay a higher multiple than any public player, right? And there really is no public player right now, Um there's no REIT that's going to buy them. There's a REIT that may want the operating properties and they might want to split up, but that, that gets complicated. But doesn't say it might won't happen. But I think any private equity buyer who's got a long-term time frame, who sees the value of these assets, paying 200 bucks a share is not a big deal at all. Even though the price right now is, you know, I, don't, I don't even know where it closed at today, um, or where it's going to close at today, I'm sorry. Um, You know, it ran up 30% yesterday. And um, let me look real quick. Yeah, probably sold off today. Yes, down separate. So 123 today. So, I mean, I think there's still plenty of upside, plenty of headroom for these and plenty of ways for these to go higher. Um, And again, I think private equity. Private equity is always playing higher valuations um, because they have the patience to do it. They don't need, they don't have to worry about their stock price, so. Do you have a time frame for the stock price movement of Chesapeake? Or is this a quarter-to-quarter story, looking at debt reduction in oil prices? So, but yeah, basically it is a quarter-by-quarter story, and you know I can't predict. Um, I don't do stock price predictions, right? I don't. I just don't do that. Um, I think it's very cheap based on the earning potential and the asset base they have and how they're performing. Um, ironically enough. Um, who was it today? Morgan Stanley, yeah. Morgan Stanley came out with a buyer recommendation, uh, gave it a two dollar and seventy five uh, dollar price target, um, and he basically said, you know, gave it an overweight um, two seventy five price target. Said that again. See this, and this, it's a Barron's article, and I'll I will link to it. Um, in the post, you guys can go to it. Uh, but he makes my perfect point in this thing that he says that not he not not the guy. That's the question. The um, uh, author of the uh, the article says that Chesapeake has been historically known more for its natural gas production, but it's been shifting more towards oil. Nobody knows that story, and 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 the fact that he's writing that is saying that you know. Hey, people still think this is a natural gas company that you know, 100% natural gas prices. Natural gas prices have fallen, so the stock's not worth that much because the company's not worth that much. The assets are worth that much. What they're going to get in the sale is not worth that much, so the company's falling. They don't realize that a quarter to almost a third of production this year is going to be oil. And that, needs, that means the whole company needs to be revaluated. And that's what he's saying in this article, is that shifting, I'll say, I'll say it, I'll read it to you, but it's been shifting towards oil which McDermott thinks will drive better margins and means that there's a better valuation than the peers. Natural gas prices have been hurt in recent weeks because of the summers started with mild weather. There's also been anxiety about a supply glut. So that's true. I mean, I don't know where you live, but I live in the northeast outside of in Boston, outside of uh, Boston in Massachusetts, and this has been the coldest, wettest, most miserable spring early summer I can imagine. I think we hit 85 uh, yesterday, and I think that was the first time this summer and that never happens. I mean, it's been it's been 65-70 degrees. I turned the AC on a couple of days ago for the first time and You know we're at the end of June that never ever ever happens So yeah, natural gas we're probably seeing huge We're seeing huge inventories and in build huge building inventories number one and then number two the price is crashing because of that, because the weather sucks, but now the weather's getting hot. So we're going to burn off a lot of that excess inventory. The prices will start to rise, but people are looking at this as a natural gas company. It's not, it's just a third oil or a quarter, a quarter round to a third. Um, so anyway, he upgrades it to 275 a share. And I, honestly, at the end of the day, when you're investing in companies like this, you're looking at the CEO. Okay. Has he delivered on the things he said he's going to deliver it on? And honestly, you know, he's del- the Chesapeake CEO's delivered on everything. He, every promise he's made, he's kept. Every expectation he said, he's accomplished. So until that doesn't happen, you got to give the guy the benefit of the doubt. And I like the company. I don't think they're done with asset sales, and I think a couple asset sales they can really make a big dent in um some remaining debt reduce the interest expense and get to be cash free cash flow positive a lot sooner than people expect so i'm holding it i have no intention of selling it i know it's going to be volatile because of the expectations on it um, because of people think about it because of um mis- misperceptions of it and that's fine with me because you know i know a couple years down the road it's going to be worth significantly more than it is now And at the end of the day, we'll all make a lot of money on it. So, um, do you have a, any price target for IAPR, Fannie Mae, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac? No, I don't, I don't do price targets. Um, because, you know, if I give you a price target today, uh, of IAPR of 180, just making up a number, don't, don't take it as gospel. Um, you know, tomorrow morning they could make a dumb acquisition that tanks the stock price. Um, they could go out and buy five properties in Massachusetts or Michigan or Illinois um, and they could not be rented. Or fire, a fire could burn down half of them. Things happen. So I don't do price targets because a price target is meaningless the second after you give it um, because things are going to happen that you don't know. What I do say and what I do think is that, um, the cur- the based on the performance of these companies, based on what I think is going to happen, I think future share prices are going to be materially higher than the current share price. And that's how, that's how I go. Um, I don't have, and it's not just cause I don't want to say it it's cause I don't even do it for myself. I don't say this thing's worth 90 bucks a share and when it hits 90 bucks a share, I'm going to sell it. Um, I don't do that. I don't. I don't because it's it's just it's meaningless. You know, if if, you know, look, look, go back in history. You know, we bought Bank of America at five, seven dollars a share. And if I said, "Oh, I have a price target two years of fifteen dollars a share," I'm going to sell it. And when I hit that, if I sold it, I'd have given up another fifteen dollars a share in profits. The the price expectations for what you own are based on the fundamentals of the company at the time you own it. And if you think the fundamentals are going to keep getting better, then the price should keep getting better, and the target price you have should keep going up. So, I mean, Wall Street does the the price target game because they kind of have to, right? And, you know, they can't come out and say, oh, X, Y, Z company is materially undervalued. It's worth a lot more than it's really worth right now, right? Who's going to buy that? Who's going to... Who's gonna make an actionable decision on that? So they have to say, X of these companies at two dollars a share, it's worth five dollars a share, right? That, that in the minds of people, um, gives value to that price target. And you see the games all the time, right? They have a two hundred dollar price target on a stock. It falls from two, falls from one ninety to one seventy five. They announce they announce bad news. It goes to one fifty. A week later, they lower the price target. I mean, it's a game. Price targets are a game, so I don't do that. Um, you know, if if I own anything, it's because I think that the future value of it is worth is much more than what it currently is. That's just the, the way I think about it, and I don't know that future value is based on the future performance of the company, and I don't know what it's going to be. I have an idea of what it's going to be based on the past performance, right? Um, but I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what deals they're going to make. I don't know what they're going to do or say, and, and 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 who might be interested in buying them, or how the industry might change. Right? I mean, if I'm in IIPR, there could be large scale changes in the industry they operate in right now. So I can't predict that. Nobody can. So giving you a price target in two years for this company, honestly, it's a joke, and it's. Um, it's uh I think it's I think it's dishonest for people, you know. You know, now me saying you know, VPR, a uh, VPG, sorry, the last pick we had was trading at 15 times earnings, growing earnings 100%. Uh, the S&P is, you know, trading at what 18, 17, 18 times earnings and me saying this company trading at 35 bucks a share just based on that differential should be trading closer to 45 or maybe 50. If you just did a valuation, read, that's not a price target. All right, that's just me saying that if this company was fairly valued based on its current performance, based on what the other stocks are trading at, it should be trading at, you know, 20, 30% higher. That's a lot different than saying, you know, I'm giving you a price target of $50 a share in a year because of X, Y, Z. So that, when I do something like that and I do that exercise, That goes more to show you just the the gap in valuation. I think there is. It's not a target price. I think it's worth because if they grow earnings 100% this year, too, um, then that $50, you know, expectation is going to be much higher. Right. If you're growing 100% earnings every single year uh, and you're trading at 15 times those earnings, eventually someone's going to figure it out. Uh, And either your stocks to trade a lot higher or someone's going to come in and buy you. Uh, You can't keep. You know doing that forever uh, and no one pick up on that fact so that's that's the exercise I do with that so um, <clears throat> there's rumors out there about a meeting this week in New York City um, about giving the GSEs and what I've heard about that is that um, the plan is out in a couple weeks it's going to be very detailed and as we said before in the podcast, it has to be detailed um, if they're expecting to raise money. And the rumor is that they're going to raise $60 billion of common, $40 billion of new preferred stock. Uh, the junior preferred will be converted at par uh, into common. And in conjunction with that, there will be agreement to settle all the lawsuits, uh, which I honestly... I think if everyone could probably stop spending millions of dollars on these lawsuits, they'd be happy to do it. Um uh, that um the excess money that has been paid into the Treasury over and above what would have been paid in under the um before the network sweep, you know, the ten percent dividend every year and the fees they had, um they've paid I think 19 to 25 billion dollars in excess of what would have been paid under that scenario. Uh, That money will be then treated as prepaid expenses, which will lower the amount of capital they need to raise uh, to meet whatever capital requirements they are going to have. So I think that's very good news for shareholders. Um, Again, I make no predictions on how the common stock is going to trade when something this is announced. Um, I, I don't know. And anyone who tells you they know is is full of it. No one knows. Um, but that's what I'm hearing. i um, hearing that a plan is due out very soon, within the next two weeks, and that um, they, they are looking towards Q4, Q1, to have some serious stuff happen on it. And again, um, I'm not so much concerned over the when, uh, as what's involved in the announcement. And I do think that the announcement, not the when of what's going to happen, is what is going to make the stock prices uh, jump immediately. And I know they've traded off the last couple days, um, but again, I think uh, you know you can't, you can't, um, you can't trade these. You can't. Um, You, you, can't, you can't hope to get out of these stocks in case the news is bad and get back into these stocks when you find out there's good news because they're not going to announce anything during market hours. What's going to happen is they're going to announce it when the market's closed and because they're OTC stocks, you're not going to be able to trade them after the bell, that kind of thing. There's no after hours trading in them. And you're going to wake up the next morning, And a stock, you know, the preferred trading for 20 bucks a share is going to be bid 35 and you're not going to be able to get back in. You know, the the common shares, either they're going to, you know, they're going to close with what's 275, something like that. They're going to either be bid 125 or bid 725 or bid five bucks. And you're not going to be able to get in and capture that price. So, you know, I think a lot of people under the assumption they're going to be able to do that, that, you know, maybe someone gets lucky. At nine, you know, whatever, and get some sucker, <laughs> put, you know, put it in there, and you can get it. But uh you're gonna wake up, and whatever's gonna happen in these stocks, either way, it's gonna happen before you have a chance to get back in. So if you if you if if you think that it's positive, or you think that you're gonna reduce your risk by getting out now and buy back in and capture the upside, you're wrong. You're not gonna be able to do it. So I'm sitting square. I'm sitting here. I'm I'm doing my thing in these and. uh you know what we're going to get is what we're going to get out of these and i'm not i'm not concerned about um short-term price fluctuations because i'm pretty sure that the long-term uh long-term upside is is much much higher so um that is pretty much all i see for questions so you know i had a post so I, I, every now and then i turn into the the TV and I, I noticed today they were doing um, You know, it's the everything bubble everything's in a bubble and we've been up, you know, eight nine years straight So we have to collapse and we have to fall down. There has to be this correction. Goldman's out with a 10% correction thing today. And um, I think that Davidson has this really cool thing uh, the S&P intrinsic value index and I put it on the on the blog today. I want to talk about it for a couple seconds because He's gone back from the pretty much the history of time in the S&P and he came up with this index and what he's shown us is that the last two bubbles, okay, uh, the internet bubble and the housing bubble uh, when stocks were wildly overvalued um, in comparison to this S&P value investor index he had, um, 60% was the Pretty much minimum overvaluation. Uh, so that pretty much means that, until the S and P, right? Given today's inflation environment, uh, given today's um, uh, earnings, uh, you'd be looking at an S and P of about forty-seven hundred. Okay, and that takes into account, you know, current earnings, current interest rates. You know, people when they when they when they tell you the S and P is overvalued or undervalued. And they ignore the interest rates equation. Um, they're not giving you the whole story. They're looking at just basic numbers, and they're not looking at things that tell you what really is. You know an P 500 at a, uh, a PE ratio of 20 with seven percent interest rates, seven percent interest rates is a completely different world to an SP500 with a PE ratio of 18 and two percent interest rates. They're not the same worlds. So when you take interest rates in the equation and what they do for business and growth and how they encourage money to go into stocks instead of bonds, you get a much different scenario. So we are nowhere near and inflation. Inflation is below two percent. You know, if inflation was six percent, interest rates are five percent right now, you have a much different valuation of the SP and a much-different outlook, but you don't. You, know, you have just over two percent interest rates and you have one point nine nine percent uh, mean, uh, mean uh, uh, inflation. And that means you need to be in stocks. And that means stocks are not overvalued. Right? Just looking at a P-E ratio and saying stocks are overvalued is a painfully simplistic approach to valuation and will lead you down a lot of wrong paths. There's a lot of people who have predicted a lot of recessions and a lot of market crashes over the last decade who have been spectacularly wrong because they're just looking at one or two issues, one or two inputs, and they're not looking at the whole picture. So please read this post because, and if you, um, intrinsic value index or search by Davis in the tags, um, he's been doing this for probably three or four years on the blog and uh, he's been a hundred percent right. So this thing nails it. We are not in a bubble. The market is not overvalued um, and has a long way to run higher. Obviously, assuming that, you know, we don't go to recession, war, you know, some catastrophic event that causes massive upheaval. Um, So that's, you know, it's just frustrating to keep hearing every day uh, people talk about the market being overvalued and saying the P.E. ratio. and, And let's be honest, earnings aren't even what earnings today aren't even what earnings were 20 years ago. All right. We have mark-to-market accounting before. We didn't have that twenty years ago. So as they mark assets up or they mark assets down, the E part of the equation changes dramatically, and it changes dramatically because of not because of actual earnings, because of valuations of bonds being held, right? That are still producing the cash flows they're supposed to produce, but because of whatever reason, the price of those bonds falls, so they got to write those down. That depresses earnings. That makes that makes the P/E ratio go up. Well, at the end of the day, core earnings are still what they are. So, comparing the historical PE ratio from the 1970s to uh, a PE ratio today is apples and oranges. You know, 30, 40 years ago, the market traded at 15 to 17 PE all the time. You had railroads and industrials and companies in the S&P 500. Right? Now it's all tech and banks and financials. They have way higher profit margins, and you know, so it's. It's, it's a frustrating to see people do it, but I understand why they have to do it. Uh, but before you make any investment decision based on what the people are saying about stuff like that, please just take a step back, look at things, check out Davidson's post on that. Um, because for the last decade, the guy's been dead on. You know, March 2009, he, he emailed me and said, I am all in on everything. This would be the greatest buying opportunity of any of our lifetimes. And he was 100% right. He didn't nail the bottom, but it was the middle middle to the end of March. And uh, he was 100% right. And uh, he's been right almost 100% of the time since then. And this value investor index thing, if you guys take it, go back, look at the past posts. I mean, the best best proof of the accuracy of it um, is going back over the last five, six years since he's been doing it and seeing what he's been saying the whole time. And uh, I think you'll be happy and impressed with it and i think if nothing else um i hope it gives you sort of comfort when you people say the market's overvalued. the market's overvalued. you can look at it and say well you know not really uh we're nowhere near a bubble you know you're at a cocktail party or dinner someone says oh we're in a bubble we're in a bubble we're in a bubble you know maybe you don't want to have the discussion but you can chuckle to yourself and say we're well, really not we've been in two bubbles the last 20 years and the um valuation of the market compared to this index was 60 to 100 to 100 percent higher hundred percent higher so in the internet bubble in the housing bubble we're talking a hundred percent higher we're talking an S P right now of what 5800 right that's where we would have been if this was the internet bubble we would have been we would have been at s p right now 5800. that's where we were with this at that time coke was trading at 80 times earnings coca-cola I mean, I think the problem is that sometimes people forget um, what happened then and forget what valuations were back then. And they just get caught up in the current times. And uh, we, are, we, are, we are nowhere near bubble valuations at all compared to where we were in 1999, 2000, and 2006, 2007. Nowhere near. So that's where I will leave you guys off for this week. Um, I hope everybody has a fantastically wonderful and safe and healthy weekend and again i will be back next friday please 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 get your questions in early next week um, because i'll probably do the thing early friday and i'm guessing you're not going to send me questions on 4th of july Um, so do them tuesday wednesday i'll put a reminder on the blog and we can answer other questions we have and let's hope uh next week's as happy as this one have a good one everybody